0: So this morning, we're going to open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can follow along with me as I read the text and as we study through it. When I was a teenager, there were a number of really uh, kind of over-the-top artists in rock and roll music, and um, and yes, I did listen to them. Uh, there was a, groups like Kiss, and you know they put on all the makeup and all that stuff. And and uh, there was this one guy named Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was probably single-handedly the most controversial of all of these of these shock rock artists. And he wore really pasty white makeup with the black eyeliner, and he kind of looked like he was dead. And his concerts were called Theater of Death. I mean that—that's what he kind of glorified, and he—he um, he, he sang about you know sex, drugs, and alcohol abuse, and all that kind of stuff that basically rock and roll was all about during the 1970s, especially. And he—he uh, he, he did outlandish, kind of gory things on stage that shocked people and got their attention. But as he began to to live out the songs that he was singing, he got hooked on drugs. He became a drug addict. He became an alcoholic. And his life was just spiraling downward. And people around him just began to to move away from him because they saw that his life was just out of control. But one person didn't leave his side, and that was his wife, Cheryl. Cheryl stuck right beside him all the way through that. Cheryl was a Christian, and uh, he wasn't. Alice was not a Christian. And so um, she began to say, the answer is the gospel, and he didn't want to hear that at first, but after a while, and his health began to take a turn, he began to listen to her. They began to read the Bible together. She finally got him to go to church with her. Eventually, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And The shock rocker of the 1970s is now a very outspoken believer in Jesus. You can find his testimony on YouTube or probably somewhere uh, on the internet. I am sure I've, I've seen it there. One of the things that caught my attention about the things that he said was, He said, you know, when I was doing all these outlandish things and my songs, he said, I thought I was a rebel. I thought I was, I was a rebel. You know, I kind of gloried in being the rebel. He said, but I figured out that I wasn't a rebel. Actually, I was going the same way the entire world system was going. I, I was just out in front of the crowd a lot of times, but I was going the same direction they're going. I was going along with them. He said, I found that the real rebellion against this world is to follow Jesus. The real rebels are followers of Jesus Christ because there is a world system. There is a prevailing philosophy. There is a worldview that controls the thoughts, the minds of people in our culture. And if you want to move against that, you want to be a rebel, be a rebel and follow Jesus. You want to be counter-cultural in our world? Follow Jesus. You want to be a radical kind of individual? Turn your life over to Jesus Christ. That's what Alice Cooper found, and I will tell you, that's what you'll find in a cancel culture. Because cancel culture demands that everyone agree with the prevailing opinion of the time. Everybody has to walk in lockstep, and if you don't walk in that lockstep, you're a rebel. And so, going against the grain of cancel culture is something we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. Because this morning, I want you to grasp what the Apostle Paul grasped. You see, in this passage of Scripture that we're going to unpack for the next few minutes, Paul's going to be really personal. Now, last week in the section that we covered, Paul covered some really deep theology. I mean, Uh, Last week's passage was just filled with things. I I told a friend of mine, I had four points. I probably should have preached four sermons from that and just unpacked all of that. It was so rich and theological. But today, Paul's going to be really more personal. And he's going to explain to this church who had never laid eyes on him. Remember, there's no technology for them to do that. Paul had never traveled to the city. And so Paul wants them to know something about him. He wants them to know how he serves them and why he follows Jesus. And he begins to unpack that for them in chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to read into chapter 2 because the chapter breaks and the verses were not in the original letter. It was just a letter. And we added those for the sake of referencing, but the unit of thought flows into chapter 2. So look at verse chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, For your sake, and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, And teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. But I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, let me, let me start to unpack this, this passage by saying, I had a moment this week when I think I sympathized with a lot of you. I read through a passage like that and I have 31 years of experience as a pastor. I mean, I've been doing sermons every week for 31 years, okay? And after a while, you get into a pattern, you begin to see things and understand things. I have two advanced degrees in theology, And I have a library filled with resources and commentaries to help me understand passages. And I read this passage for the first time and this is what I said. What in the world does that mean? Some of you in your devotional time, uh, this week, if you're reading through the Bible or you're reading through the New Testament, this week's schedule called for you to read that passage. And I wondered what some of you, I sympathize with what some of you who don't have the time or the training or the tools that I have you're going. You're, you're getting up in the morning reading your Bible and you're going, okay, I looked for something for some inspiration, some clarity, some instruction, some encouragement, maybe even some correction to show me how I ought to do something differently in my life. And I read that and it was like, ah, I don't know what that means. So let me help you with what I do when I come across a passage like this. I read through that passage and I say to myself, all right, what is this all about? And I start looking for key words. Now, if you were to read through that passage three or four times, which is what I do, and sometimes I use different translations, one of the things that I noticed is that there's this word struggling and suffering and striving that is used in this passage. Now, in a short block of scripture, a word that's used over and over and over or a concept that's repeated, that means something. That's important. We want to zero in on it, so I wrote that down. There are also a few words in the New Testament, and as you read through it, you're going to notice, and you're going you're to kind of catch on to that, oh, this word's used other times when you read through your Bible. Let me give you an example of one of them. The word that I read, stewardship. Some of you read the word commission. Commission right there. That means God's marching orders. Anytime that that word's used in the New Testament, it essentially means that it is, it is God giving us instructions for how we're supposed to live. It's, 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 uh, his, his marching orders is probably the best way to define it. And then the word mystery occurs there. And anytime that word occurs, it always catches my attention. So I wrote those words down. And I began to try to unpack what these verses mean. So let me just start with, say, verse 25. In verse 25, Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Paul says, I was made a minister. The word there is diakonos. We get our word deacon from it. It doesn't mean a ruling authority, it means a servant. A diaconos was a household servant. Basically, it was somebody who waited on tables, somebody who brought the food out, and somebody who cleared the table and washed the dishes. And so Paul says, I was made a servant of the church. I was made a servant, and that was granted to me or that was given to me as a stewardship, as a commission. God gave me my marching orders. When Paul uses that word stewardship and he begins to unpack that, what he's telling us is this I found my ultimate unique purpose for life. I want you to understand from this text, first and foremost, that I can find my unique purpose. Through serving God. I know a lot of people who are frustrated. They are unfulfilled. They wake up every morning. They go to a job that they feel like just kind of pays the bills maybe. But there's nothing that fills their life with passion. There's nothing that ignites the fire of their life. And they are living lives ultimately because what they're doing may last for a day or a week or maybe for a decade. But we're going, we're, we're all just building houses of straw here. They're all going to be gone someday. What we're doing ultimately doesn't matter. And if you feel that way about your life, then it's going to be unfulfilling. There's not going to be a sense of passion and purpose about your life. But I want you to understand, and Paul would want you to understand, that you can find God's unique purpose for your life. You were created on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose, Every single person has a purpose. Now for Paul, he called this the stewardship given to him or the calling that he had. Let me give you a little background on when Paul actually got this. There's a period of time in scripture in the book of Acts when Paul actually is called Saul. He not only got a, a new nature when he received Jesus Christ, he got a new name. His name was changed from Saul to Paul. So Saul, before he became a Christian, was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish ruler. And he was passionate about the Jewish religion. When he saw these people turning away from being Jews to becoming Christians, he was infuriated. He believed they were polluting the Jewish religion. And he wanted to snuff out this false belief about Jesus being raised from the dead. And he was so angry about it that he began to threaten, even imprison and persecute those people who were followers of Jesus. He heard that in Damascus, Syria, there were a group of followers of Jesus. And what he decided was he was going to snuff out this new religion. Here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter nine, verse one. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that as he approached, uh, as was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Saul is knocked to the ground by this blinding light. He is actually stricken blind. He cannot see. The men who are with him lead him by the hand into Damascus. The Bible says that for three days... He is stuck in Damascus, blinded in darkness. All of a sudden, he is haunted by the words that he has heard. He knew that whatever powerful force it was knocked him to the ground, was divine. He knew this was was God who was speaking to him. And so he says, I want to know who this is. And he must have been absolutely shocked beyond all belief when the voice comes back, I am Jesus. It rocked his world. Everything he had built his life on, everything that he had thought was so important, everything that he had said, this is truth, was just rocked. And he's sitting there not eating. The Bible says he didn't eat for three days. Could have been a fast, might not have been. Maybe he just lost his appetite. But he got to a place where he is searching for God, and God knew that he's searching for him. So God speaks to another man. This man's name was Ananias. And he says, Ananias... I want you to go find Paul or Paul, find Saul. And Ananias says, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Saul's looking for me. I'm a follower of Jesus. He wants to kill me. I don't want to look for him. I don't want to find him. And God says, no, I want you to go find him. And here's why I want you to find him. I want you to find him because of what the Lord said to him in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. God said, Ananias, I want you to go tell Paul that I have an assignment for him. I have a commission or a stewardship for him to take hold of. I have a calling and a purpose for his life. Now, some of you read that kind of story and you say, okay, that kind of thing, that's for you preacher types. That, that's for people who you know, are supposed to preach or be student pastors or be uh, professors at a seminary or a university. That's for people who are supposed to be missionaries. That's for you people. It's not for us normal people. Not for normal people like you. It's, it's for people like me. But I think if we ask the Apostle Paul, do normal people get a calling? I believe he'd tell us yes. In his letters, he he encourages people like Timothy and Titus, and he he encourages them to pursue their calling. There's a guy named Demas that he castigates because Demas had abandoned his calling. And a guy named Alexander, he does exactly the same thing. If Paul were standing here today, I am convinced that he would say to you that it's not just preacher types who get callings. But it is every believer, every follower of Jesus has a purpose and a part to play in God's redemptive purpose in the world. Jesus phrased it another way, so let me give you that. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, here it is, and take up his cross and follow me. Your cross is your calling. For a long time, I think people have misunderstood this, and preachers probably have helped with the misunderstanding, that some people think my cross is an unpleasant circumstance in my life. My cross is a, is a painful uh, a part of my life or part of my past. My cross is a, is a person in my life who is hard to get along with, but I, I have to put up with them. That is not your cross to bear. Your cross is your part in what God is doing in the world. Your cross is your calling. And my calling is God's unique purpose for my life. I believe God has something for you to do that will advance the gospel, that pushes the kingdom forward, that grows the church. God has something for you to do. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying everybody's supposed to be a preacher or quit their job and go to seminary and earn a degree in theology. That is not the point. God needs normal people because what God wants is God wants for his people for this rebellion to penetrate every sphere of society. God wants people on mission to carry out their purpose in the petroleum industry in the medical field, in the military, in the educational field. God wants students to be rebels in their school who take the gospel of Jesus into that school. I have a friend. He's a high school football coach. And if you ask him, what's your job? He would say, a high school football coach. If you say, what are you trying to do? He'd say, win football games. Because after all, you got to win football games to stay a high school football coach, okay? You don't stay a high school football coach if you don't score some touchdowns, tackle the other players uh, every now and then, and win some football games. But if you ask him what his purpose is, he'll say, oh, my purpose? That is to lead young men to know Jesus and to grow to be followers of Jesus. That's his agenda Now, yeah, he's got to coach them up on football. He's got to teach them how to block and tackle. He's got to do all those things in order to keep the job. But his ultimate purpose, and he believes what God put him on this earth to do, is to influence those young men that maybe the preacher's never going to influence. I don't know what your job is. I don't know what your place is in the social arena, in clubs or in associations that you're a part of. But I want to tell you this. God has a purpose for your life. And you can spend your life building stuff for this world and having a nice house, and that's all great. There's nothing wrong with that. And having the new cars and going on great trips And accumulating maybe some inheritance for your children once you're gone. That's great, but you're going to be gone. And it's all going to be wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to be wood, hay, and straw. It's all going to burn someday. But you can spend your life in pursuit of something that matters forever. And that's God's kingdom. That is advancing the kingdom of God in this world. Now, look at Paul again at at what he said God put me here to do. He says, Now God gave me a stewardship. God gave me a purpose. And here's my purpose. Look down at verse 25. Again, he says, That I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been made manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, this was mysterious in the past. People didn't understand it. How is God gonna reconcile the world to himself? It looked mysterious. Nobody understood it. He said, but now... It's clearly made known. It's manifested. It's a a little bit like back when in the spring, uh, back, you know, pre-COVID, we had Justin Flom here. And Justin does this sleight of hand and he does all these illusions and he makes you think something has happened that actually hasn't happened, right? And you watch him from your seat out there and where I was sitting out there and you look up here and he goes, man, that's a mystery. How in the world did that happen? But if Justin turned the box around or if Justin showed us how it happened, it takes all the mystery out of it because the mystery has been revealed. This is what Paul says happened with the gospel. He said for centuries, people said, God says he wants to reconcile the world to himself. How is he possibly going to do that? And then all of a sudden, God pulled back the curtain and he said, through the death of my son on a cross, that's how I'm going to do it. And the mystery now is made manifest. The mystery is revealed. And he says, even to the Gentiles. And Paul said, my mission is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's, that's my part in God's redemptive plan. And then he says, when I beyond reaching them with the gospel, then I teach them. Look at verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ, here's what Paul says. Paul says, my mission, my commission, my purpose, is to make the gospel known to the Gentiles, to tell people about Jesus, and then to teach them. That sounds vaguely familiar, like something Jesus said when he said, "You, these are my instructions to you. Go, make disciples." teaching them whatsoever things I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, Paul's commission, Paul's purpose was a microcosm. It was a personalized version of the Great Commission. Here's what I want you to know. That God's purpose for my life will always align with his grander purpose for the world. God has a part for you to play in the big picture of what he's doing in the world today. You can be part of something big. I mean bigger than you could possibly ever imagine because what God has for you to do is a part of what he has for me to do. And what God has for us to do is a part of what he has for another church to do and people and people who follow Jesus in other states to do so that what we are doing is moving forward farther and farther and advancing the kingdom of God, advancing the gospel so that more and more people hear the gospel, come to know Jesus, and grow to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's what God wants to accomplish through you. God has a unique purpose for your life. But I also want you to know this. Paul wanted his his readers to understand this, this church at Colossae, that if you're going to serve God and you're going to fulfill your unique purpose... I will pay a price for serving God. There is a price to be paid for serving God. Now that's uncomfortable. Bobby kind of had me fired up about that for a minute, and now you kind of threw water on it. Paul uses these three words. <clears throat> I'm in verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. Paul said he was suffering for these believers. Down in verse 29, for this this purpose, I also labor, striving. Look at chapter two, verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Paul is saying that he suffered, he struggled, and he was striving on behalf of the gospel and on behalf of these believers. We are the first generation of people. Who have ever believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be advanced? That the kingdom of God can expand in our world without us ever paying a price? We are ultimately consumers so much of the time. But Paul says, I suffer. And he even goes so far as to say this, which is a little confusing and begs to be explained. At the end of verse 24, he says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me unpack that for just a minute because it could be confusing. Paul was thoroughly convinced of the adequacy of Christ's death on the cross. Paul was absolutely convinced. And the passage we just read tells us that what Jesus did was the fully sufficient sacrifice for your sins and mine. He is not saying that somehow Jesus started our redemption and we got to pay it off. We got we to suffer to make sure we get saved. That's, that's not the point. He is using the sufferings of Christ as a comparison. Here's what he's saying. Christ suffered to usher in the kingdom of God Christ suffered to bring in the kingdom he died a brutal, cruel death on the cross the most brutal of deaths that anyone had ever died crucifixion was the most gruesome, excruciating extended, slow suffocating death that man had ever created and invented it was horrendous Most of the depictions in art are absolutely tame compared to what Jesus actually went through. He suffered to usher in the kingdom of God. And by way of comparison, Paul is saying that I suffer along with him. That we will have to suffer to advance the kingdom of God. If we are going to take on the powers of evil in this world... And we are going to see the kingdom of God advance. And we are going to see the church continue to grow. Someone is going to have to suffer. Here's the way that Jesus put it again. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we're going to see our friends and our neighbors come to know the gospel, come to faith in Jesus, to receive the gift of eternal life, if we are going to see a culture that has gone off the rails somehow brought back, it's going to mean that somebody is going to have to do some denying of self and some dying. The kingdom of God never grows, it never flourishes. And the gospel never advances unless someone is willing to pay a price. We are going to have to do some dying to selfishness and to convenience. We are going to have to do some denying of self-absorption and carefree living. Discipleship is costly. It is. There is a cost to following Jesus. And if you've been sold a gospel in which there was not a cost to you, you misunderstood the gospel. Following Jesus is costly. Paul says, I suffer. I struggle. I strive. There is a price to be paid. I, uh, I've really enjoyed watching the Tour de France, and I know a lot of you don't ride a bike. I, I ride a bike, and so I'm kind of enjoying the Tour de France. I was worried we weren't even going to have it this year. Usually they race it in July. They're racing it right now in September, and I enjoy watching it. A lot of people who start watching, who flip, you know, maybe flip that on and watch it, they don't understand cycling the way that it works in, in something like a Tour de France. You see, there were 180 riders that started the tour. 20 teams of nine riders. Now of those 180 riders, not every one of them is there to win the tour. They're not. On on each team of nine riders, there is one rider that they're trying to propel to to the finish line and to win the tour for their team. The other riders have specializations and of them, about six of them are simply called domestiques, servants, domestic servants. It simply means this. Their job is to expend every ounce of energy they have, every fiber of their being, to pull their rider to the front. Here's what a lot of people don't know about cycling. If you're the guy at the front, you get all of the force of the air, all of the winds pushing against you. But you should try this sometime, but it's a little risky. If you're going into the wind and you're riding and you can get into somebody's slipstream, all of a sudden riding gets easier. And that third guy in line, the riding gets a little easier. And by the time you're to the fourth or fifth wheel, that guy's just effortlessly cruising along at 30 miles an hour. And that's where they put their guy they want to win. But here's what happens. For over 100 miles, the team gets on the front. These guys have got their heads down. They are using every ounce of energy they've got. They are pounding it. And for 99 miles of the 100 miles, they are out in front. They're the tip of the spear. And in the last moment, those three or four riders at the front begin to peel off so that their contender... Their contender goes to the finish line and he wins the race and he crosses the line and he raises his arms in victory and the newspapers and the reporters say his name and he gets a kiss from a beautiful French girl and a bouquet of flowers and a trophy. And nobody even knows the names of those guys who drug him to the finish line, nobody. Let me help you with something. It does not matter If anybody ever remembers the name Bob McCartney, it does not matter. My job is to struggle and to strive so that my champion and his name is Jesus is the one they know about that I use every source of energy, every power within my being, every gift that he has poured into my life, that I use everything that I have, and I pull off to the side and Jesus is glorified. And if it means that I struggle and I suffer, and in the end my champion has his arms raised, then I win. But I want you to know this. It's not all grit your teeth, grin and bear it, suck it up. It's not that at all. Here's what Paul said at verse 29. I'm going to leave you with this. For this purpose, also I labor, striving according to, not my power, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He says, I'm not in agony, and that's what what that word striving comes from, he says, I'm not in agony out of self-effort. It's according to the power that's at work within me. What enabled the apostle Paul to endure imprisonments and beating and he's shipwrecked and and all these horrible things happened? What, what, What caused Paul to just not say, I quit, I give up? It's because there was a power within him. It was the same power that raised Jesus from the grave and it was the power that enabled him and it is the power that will enable you to serve God in our generation. God put us on this planet for such a time as this. God raised up our church for such a time as this. The eternal God of the universe knew there was gonna be COVID-19 long before any of us did. Jesus Christ is worthy of every effort of my life. He is worthy of my passion and my pursuit, and he is worthy, if necessary, of my struggling and suffering so that he might be glorified. Would you bow your heads, please? For some of you in this room, you're like, I don't know what my purpose is. I want to challenge you. It's worth searching out. It's worth the mental, spiritual effort it takes to work it out. If it means you need to enter into a season of prayer, if it means that you need to fast, I advocate for that. I believe that's what Paul did for those three days in Damascus. It is worth finding that sweet spot, that place that God has granted you in his redemptive purpose in the world. Nothing will ignite your passion. Nothing will ignite your fire like knowing you're doing what God put you on this planet to do. Some of you know God's purpose for your life. But through this season especially, you're just tired. Maybe you've been depending on your effort and not on a power that resides in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Maybe today you just need to surrender afresh and say, God, I need you. Fill me. I need you. But there are those of you who have never trusted Christ. You've never given him your life and surrendered completely to his purpose. You are striving and you are working and you are trying so hard to find fulfillment and to find something to fill that sense of emptiness and nothing will ever do it until you give your life to Jesus. I want to challenge you to do that today. Give your life to Christ. There's going to be a number on the screen that you can send a text to. If you would simply just text the letters FBCWF to the number you're going to see on the screen, what's going to happen is we're going to send you a, a Google Docs form You just fill that out. Let us know how we could help you, how we could contact you. And we want you to know Christ. We want to help you to know Christ. For those of you who are here in this room, immediately after this service, there'll be pastors at the Next Steps area. If you need to give your life to Christ, I want to ask you, go to them. Go to one of them today. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Don't say, I'll do it some other time. Do it today. And I want to ask you to make that step. Father, we come before you this morning so grateful that you just didn't throw us out into the world and say, make your own way, but that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives, and that plan matters forever. It's not building sandcastles, but it's advancing your eternal kingdom. And God, I pray this morning that every person that is listening to your word this morning will surrender afresh to what you are doing in their lives and what you long to do in their lives. Lord, would you, would you move among us by your spirit? Would you speak personally into the lives of people today that you have an assignment for? Lord, would you speak personally into the lives of people that you long to draw close to you and save even today? God, we ask you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.